0: Hello and welcome to the second part of this CONCAST podcast with Abhinav Sekri, the criminal trial lawyer and author of the fantastic blog, The Proof of Guilt. In the previous part, we spoke about the PMLA judgment and how in many ways that one judgment articulates and reflects a pretty large swathe of Indian criminal law, the interface between criminal law and the constitution, and how the Indian courts address the balance of power between the individual and the state in context of coercive power. Another set of events that took place through the end of June and July that I think also reflect in different ways these issues were the events around the arrest and eventual release of Muhammad Zubair, the the, um, fact checker and journalist who works with Alt News. So, what we'll do in the second part is that we'll go through what happened in chronological order and talk about what the constitution says about safeguards, what the courts have done and what they did in this case. So, to start with, on 27th June, Zubair was arrested by the Delhi police for a 2018 tweet, which was in turn about a 1983 movie. This is not very uncommon in in recent times, these kinds of arrests. Now, Zubair is arrested. And so the first constitutional safeguard that kicks in is Article 22, Clause 2 of the Constitution that requires a person... To be produced before the magistrate within 24 hours the idea being that the magistrate will apply judicial mind to decide if any further custody is required or not i mean is that broadly the rationale for article 22 clause 2 that you have 24 hours the police gets to catch 24 hours and then they have to bring the person before some kind of a court to check if the arrest was legal, if there were grounds for continuing. And so basically, everything after that has to be sanctioned by a court.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Right. So, so he's produced at night, and the magistrate orders a one day police remand. Um, and then next day, he's produced before the Patiala House. Oh, stop there.
1: Stop there. Sorry, yeah. No, uh... Uh, that that first order is monumentous, right? Because like you said, the mo- it's actually not 24 hours, but the moment you are produced before a magistrate, the law on the criminal side is basically telling us that, look, the magistrate is applying his or her mind to the legality of arrest. The moment the magistrate sanctions further custody, the magistrate deems to have legalized that arrest. So therefore, that first order of one-day police custody remand is critical. Because what the fiction that it creates right. is that a judicial officer has applied her mind to the facts and come to a finding that, look, there was nothing wrong as far as the arrest is concerned. In your experience, in your years of practice, has a magistrate ever... I mean... I have I, seen it, it twice. I know where you're the, going. The very first arrest, right, you, you've seen it twice. I have seen it twice where I have seen a magistrate say that this arrest seems bunkum. I am releasing this person on bail this instance. I have twice seen it happen out of, twice. Out of, I mean, out of God knows how many cases, yeah. but I have seen it twice. Where And with with a strong order where it clearly seems that these provisions have been invoked only with a view to surmount the cognizability issue. This is not made out on the face of it. I am releasing this person on personal bonds and so on. So So not even a surety that person got released on personal bond. Seen it twice. But, you know, again, the fact that it's only happened twice in God knows how many years just sort of suggests to you. And why this is important, and I think, let me just continue that thought, is that an illegal arrest, the remedy against an illegal arrest is what? It is to file a petition challenging that illegal arrest in a constitutional court. So you file a habeas corpus petition saying that my custody is illegal. So therefore, I should be freed. On the habeas corpus side of the law, there is this line of judgments that says that look, the moment a judicial officer applied her mind to the legality of your arrest, you you sort of lost the day that happened. Any chance of a constitutional court substituting its jurisdiction on the legality of the arrest for what the magistrate held. Is, is there,
0: isn't so, there one case, isn't there one case that says that if the if the judicial order in
1: question is Borderline Absolutely, right. So, so, so correct. Context. So, exactly. So, the tests there then become those administrative law things where that judicial order in question has to be so unconsignable that, you know, it doesn't stand to reason at all. But basically what happens then is that you are entering that line of uh, law where uh, a, a superior authority as such is not going to substitute its judgment for what the first instance court had held. So therefore, the moment your first instance court has held, you know, that you ought to be remanded to further custody, that finding is practically a death knell to any hope of succeeding in a challenge before a constitutional court that look my arrest was illegal.
0: Right. So basically habeas corpus is out. Like when, when the court sanctions the first practically. Run, yeah. Practically. Um, and that also then, I mean, so we don't yet have a developed jurisprudence on this point, maybe. But the idea of getting compensation for illegal arrests or you know proceeding against the officials, all of that also goes because then the arrest is deemed to be legal. Yeah, all, all of that goes. The,
1: right. Okay.
0: Yeah, yeah. So that that is a consequence of that first remand order, which you know you may initially think is is okay, like it's just one day. Um and in fact, you know, that was my uh, my impression as well, which is why I initially was skipping over that. Um, but of course, as, as you said, there are hidden or maybe not hidden, but not immediately apparent consequences. I think, I think again, also we we have come to a point where we don't even think of the possibilities of finding an arrest to be illegal because it happens so you know so rarely, right? So we don't even think of of Oh yeah, actually, you could just say that the arrest was illegal um, uh, from the beginning. So, but but yeah, so that that's what that that order of initial remand does in terms of the legal consequences. And of course, it doesn't need to be the case because the whole point of having a judicial authority examine your case as under Article Twenty Two, Clause Two of the Constitution is for the judiciary to apply those legal tests, right? Um, but um, so. So next day he's taken to Patiala House where the police asks for a five-day remand, and the magistrate grants a four-day remand. And I think here there are, there are three or four issues that arise. One is that, let's see the reasons that the, the police gives to ask for a remand. What they say is that, you know, they, they, they say two things. One is that... Um, they uh, that the that they want the laptop and the phone from which he sent this tweet. That is the subject matter of uh, of the apparent offense. It hurt religious sentiments. So they want the laptop and the phone from which he sent these tweets. Uh, and that they are in Bangalore and they need to get those lap that laptop and that phone first. And secondly, that he Zubair has apparently they want that's what they say. Has formatted his phone, deleted tweets. And so this could be like, there could be various suspicious things happening. And so they want his custody to figure out, you know, what has he been doing formatting his phone? You know, there are two reasons that they give going by the uh, trans kind of the informal transcript of the oral arguments. So a few things arise, right? Um, first question for you is that he's admitting that he sent these tweets, he's not denying them. Um, So why do you need his custody and why did, you know, so could the magistrate have just said that once he's admitted that these are his tweets, you don't need to have his custody anymore for anything.
1: Yeah, so the the age old ploy in any of these kinds of situations, and I think that's also there in the, the transcript of whatever was made available to the public. Is that the government also at the end of this always says that look there might there we are exploring a conspiracy
0: mm.
1: and so there, there so if you view it from the eyes of the magistrate right so there are two three things and I think which is why it again becomes important to I, I'm not an apologist for any of these practices I just want to make that. Really clear, because unlike a lot of people, I keep wanting people to look to the overall systems, etc, etc, while they're, you know, considering good or bad. I'm going to do the same thing here, where if you make this, uh, you know, take forget Zubair's case for, for a second. If you look at how from 1860 to today, investigations work in India. And how judges think investigations work, and how what is good for an investigation. The first answer that any judge will give you is custodial interrogation, where the idea is that look, this is the way in which any crime can be cracked by the cops, by the police, and so you. This is basically the the, the big most important tool that an investigation needs for itself. So. You know, it's basically, it's like denying a child milk, like, you know, you if you deny the police agency custodial interrogation, it is that serious a thing. So, for, for any judge, for that matter, to turn around and tell the police that, you know, one day is enough or two days is enough and the law grants them up to 14, I just want people to understand how strong a call that is from a systemic point of view, which does not get appreciated enough as often as it should. Because you are operating within a system where there is an assumption that this is how criminal investigations work. I, it doesn't matter whether in this case we know. You, you have to understand this perspective, right? This perspective is of not, you know, an idea that look, the accused has said this, so this is what it is. That's not the reality that you're dealing with the moment you are under arrest the reality that which we're dealing with is that now the job of figuring out the truth is vested in this agency called the police. It is the job of the police to come to the truth. It is granted by law ways in which it will come to the truth. And one of the most important ways for it to do that is by having the ability to keep a person in police custody for up to 14 days subject to obviously judicial review. And so... What you get then is that, yes, the accused admitting etc. is valuable, okay, great. But if the police is not agreeing to that, then a magistrate is going to still always trust the police version during an investigation. Because the idea of our investigative process is that we have a very distinct disinclination to allow the accused to bring in material. Till, you know, what stage? Not even till the investigation, not till the state of arguments on charge. It is only during evidence that an right. accused has the ability to actually bring in anything to court. There are very, very minor exceptions along the way, granted. But the systemic inclination is that, boss, I am going to trust the police case. If I don't let the police build the case, how can I trust it? The way the... Own, the most important thing that the police needs to build its case is police custody. So for me to turn around and deny them police custody, I have to be at like, you know, that zenith level of certainty that boss this has nothing. And but I'm saying why, that is why in he, a magistrate's mind. No, sorry, can I just like so ask one? The last one thing. Sorry, go on, Yeah, yeah. The last thing, basically, I'm saying that, you know, for a magistrate, the training that a magistrate has from practice and also from like school, like a judge school and all of that at some level is all of this like these are the considerations that are going in the mind of a magistrate in that you know in that instance when a remand application is sort of made why
0: why can't the same be done with the police just calling you in for questioning
1: instead of having you
0: in custody like why can't they call you like 9 a.m uh to ask you questions and 12 noon, like you go back home and they're done with asking you questions. Why Why is like, why is custody essential for, you know, for, for that?
1: Because, and uh, this is a, just the famous Supreme Court uh, judgment of Anil Sharma actually has this where it's a, it's a case called State versus Anil Sharma. And this is, I think, a judgment by Katie Thomas, Justice Katie Thomas as he then was, mm-hmm. where the court You know, accepts this idea that custodial interrogation, and I'm actually now going to quote only. We find force in the submission of the CBI that custodial interrogation is qualitatively more elicitation-oriented than questioning a suspect who is well ensconed with a favorable order under 438 CRPC, basically. It is this. In a case like this, effective interrogation is of tremendous advantage in disentering many useful informations and also materials which would have otherwise been concealed. Successive uh, interrogation would elude if successful interrogation would elude if the suspected person knows that he is well protected. Very often, interrogation in such a situation would be reduced to a mere ritual. So the argument that custodial interrogation is fraught with the danger of the person being subjected to third degree methods need not be countenanced. for, for such an argument can be advanced in all and sundry cases. The court has to presume that responsible police officers would conduct themselves in the task of disintering offenses and would not conduct themselves as offenders in the process. So there you go. So this, this is what I meant in terms of a systemic preference for custodial interrogations. Right.
0: And so, yeah, so I mean, so basically, there is, like you said, there is this sense that is reinforced by judgments like this, that um, once the police, you know, once the you know, initial arrest is legal, so to say, then the default is that the police is entitled to have you in custody to build their case against you uh
1: so, so it's and, not going to and be and the deprivation
0: of your liberty the, the deprivation of uh, your liberty during the time is a price that we have, we have to pay for like society or whatever correct
1: so i'm saying that what happens in practice that very rarely will you see the police get all 14 days so yeah i
0: know i notice that yeah it's kind of like it's you know, very
1: uncommon yeah. usually it will be 4 to 10 somewhere in the middle hmm. but This is your where right now at the time of days, I am telling you that practically speaking, I mean, any seasoned criminal lawyer who you will speak to will tell you that that first 60 days of, you know, investigation till that time that a charge sheet is filed, unless it is a strong case where it is like, you know, this kind of case where it is such an obvious kind of issue where there's nothing to be gathered. And frankly, you can even make a good case to say that the case itself has something deeper going on behind it. Hmm. You will not be advised to file a bail application in a hurry. You will be. So it's like basically,
0: I mean, you 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 take it for granted that you'll spend like two months in jail, and then we'll see
1: what happens. I after. wouldn't say two months, but I would say at least the first 14 days. Very rarely would you be advised to file a bail application, given the idea is exactly what we were discussing that when it comes to the needs of an investigation, your liberty is secondary. Right. In terms of the judicial precedent on this. Point, As well as the practice, the idea across, like it rings out loudly across court halls, is that in this calculus of, okay, what is the need of an investigation for your custody versus your liberty, the investigative need is going to win. Sorry, deal with it for 14 days. After that, we'll see. Yeah, I think that's the question
0: of of like, what value our judicial system and our society more generally places on the idea of individual freedom right like it's just the question of that I mean if, if if judges were outraged by the prospect of losing 14 days of freedom then maybe things would be different but historically and presently generally they're not and you know that seems to be a broader consensus as well so I guess like it just follows that what becomes sort of a legal common sense, right? This is the way, this is normal, this is how it's done.
1: Yeah, so our system has this really odd, stent- like, you know, we spoke in the, la- la- the last time we were having a conversation, we spoke about tensions at the heart of that judgment in Vijay Lal Chaudhary. And I'm saying that these are there are also these various tensions at the heart of our criminal process and the system, where on the one hand, we are this rights-bearing sort of constitution, which, you know, professes great love for individual liberty but at the same time we are also very process heavy system where it's it's very necessary for the superior court to make sure that whatever the lower court did was in all proprietary done like you know and this it becomes and this tension sort of comes out really strongly when you look at bail so where let's say mm. if if you know bail orders the court and there are a lot of judgments Actually, a lot of them, I think, over the last two, three years have been by a bench of Justice Chandrachud, where bail orders are interfered with not because bail ought to be cancelled, you know, because a person has done something contrary to bail conditions, but because the bail order itself does not show enough reasons. Hmm. So this is where I'm getting at. So the requirement of reasons ought to be there in the order. And so your bail order is set aside because a superior court, it's not that the superior court is coming to a conclusion that bail ought to have or not not to have been granted. Hmm. It is a pure exercise of look on a reading of the judicial order. It's not clear as to what weighed with the mind of the court as to why bail should be granted. So I am sending this back. I am hmm. setting aside the order. Now, If you think about it, personal liberty, all that, why? Right? I mean, bail... Okay, I mean, the reason, it, the reason
0: should be if you're not giving bail, right? If personal liberty yeah, is like... Exactly. The,
1: yeah. So, the reason should be if you don't give bail, that's when the reasons have to be that more. But even when you're granting bail, there are these judgments that have consistently held that, look, the reasons ought to be there clearly. It ought to not be an arbitrary order. So, therefore, that, that tension comes out loud and clear then that, you know, the, there There ought to be nothing fishy going on, or we have to be satisfied that propriety was propriety was maintained, et cetera et cetera hmm. so I'm saying similarly when you look at it uh, in this context of remand and and what's happening you there are these tensions, and I think those those aren't appreciated well enough because a lot of this is you know within the everyday practice of of law and it doesn't get highlighted that much. But yeah. these tensions are there and they're fundamental to how actually the implementation of law is working. Right.
0: Yeah. No, fair enough. Yeah. Was, the second thing, and I'm, I'm not going to discuss this because we've talked about this before in the previous issue and interested listeners can see Concast issue too, uh, you know, uh, is that uh, this whole thing of him formatting his phone and the idea that, you know, there's something wrong or you're evading authorities by taking these kinds of precautions of formatting your phone and as a good law abiding citizen like you need to even preemptively be cooperating with a possible future investigation by not formatting your phone um, so that we have just, we've talked about again that tension in our criminal jurisprudence right that is it adversarial is it inquisitorial like what so, so we've discussed that we, we don't need to repeat that uh, the third thing i want to discuss is um, so when the when the remand order records the police needing Zubair's laptop and phone as the reason for the demand. So there are two things that arise, I think. One is that this then becomes effectively a phishing expedition, uh, right, where everyone knows that you don't you don't really need the laptop and the phone for the tweet because, you know, he's admitting to it and he just discussed that. But the reason why you're actually getting the laptop and the phone is because you, the police, want to find something there. And when you suspect... Either for some reason or for no reason, that if you look at the laptop, you will find something totally different, but something also potentially illegal. Um, and that is actually a fishing expedition, right? You don't have, re- you don't, uh, what, what you say in, in layperson's lay kind of language, it's a bit like a general warrant, right? So you suspect somebody might be doing something illegal somewhere. You don't know what that illegal thing is. It's like, okay, I will have a warrant to search this whole area in case something turns up. Um, so that's one thing. And the second thing, of course, and the related thing is that M.P. Sharma onwards, there is this holding that documentary evidence is is, is comes within uh, the guarantee against self-incrimination. And so isn't there an argument to be made that there actually is, I mean, the, the question of whether the police can A, uh, grab your laptop, and then B, force you to give them the password to open it. That is itself something that is, should be contested before the court as a self-incrimination issue and therefore shouldn't become part of the court's reasons for remand because then that is effectively forestalling a possible challenge uh, and preempting it. right? So I think these are the two uh, connected issues I want to I want to put to you. The phishing expedition and self-incrimination with respect to being forced to open up your laptop or phone to an investigating agency.
1: So on fishing expedition, and I think, and you know, I'll take you back to your own writing on this, where in trans, if I'm not wrong, it's a chapter in transformative constitution where you dealt with Selvi mm. and you dealt with the uh, Shamlal, Mohanlal, uh, Choksi that judgment, where, it, where you also refer to the search and seizure provisions in the CRPC and you refer to the speech made uh, in the 1880s when the law was amended which spoke about how it's not about rights when it comes to search but it's about basically making sure that the government interests are protected Hmm. Uh, and I'm saying that I'm basically referring to that that uh, citation that you had put there because frankly that still is what the law is today so the search and seizure provisions in the CRPC remain oriented not from a rights perspective at all but that entire perspective is to facilitate a very, very broad ranging inquiry by the state, which is borderline fishing expedition. So just to give you an example, the power to seize property under section 102 of the CRPC is that any police officer may seize any property suspected to have been stolen or which may be found under circumstances, which creates suspicion of the commission of any offense. Mm. Now, this is great for property, property, but what what happens with digital property, like your laptop or your phone? Right. You don't have any logic behind it. So there is actually a line of judgments that is, you know, differing on opinions of, okay, is 102 only about property that is connected with the commission of an offense? Hmm. Or is it broader and you can connect anything under 102? Because the circumstances are about the commission of any offense. So, I am saying that these these uh, the, these the provisions are subject to a very broad reading if one wants to do it that way. But obviously, that would, according to at least me, would come in the way of, you know, the Constitution being there. And uh, yes, I am putting it that way, that this would come in the way of the Constitution mm-hmm. rather than the Constitution coming in the way of these clauses, because that's what seems to happen quite often. So... So that's number one on the fishing expedition that I think the law never changed. The constitutional guarantees came in, but I think that it's still not really implemented to the degree that it it could have been. Secondly, on the phone, and again, this is really interesting because there, you know, you, you spoke about remand and custody. I'm saying that that is a genuine issue. And this is an issue that is live before some courts. One court, that is the Karnataka High Court, has decided an issue on this. Yeah. Then the Kerala High Court has also decided. The Kerala High Court's matter was a very sensational matter. So maybe, bad you facts. Know, when it, bad facts
0: make bad law, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, so bad <laughs> facts make very bad law. And maybe, you know, you can hope for better facts making slightly better law in that case. But there are other challenges that are still alive. What is, what is more troubling rather actually equally troubling is how often in bail conditions or rather cooperation during an investigation the Supreme Court has also not shied away for asking for cooperation by you know revealing uh, email accounts etc so I think
0: there was in docu- fact uh, Justice under judgment no? Recently I did
1: think that. so yeah. in terms of uh, in terms of something to do with Bitcoin or something on that front
0: I have some recollection
1: yeah yeah so and it's It's slightly ironic because, uh, you know, bail conditions are there in this case, in Zubair's case, where the government sought bail conditions that he ought not to tweet. And the court spoke about proportionality of bail conditions. Mm. But you're right, actually, Gautam. It was a bench consisting of Justice Chandrachut and Justice Surya Kant, Mm. where uh the the accused was pulled up for not sharing the username and password of his crypto wallet. Right. Yes. So yeah. I mean, and I mean, I'm just reading from a news article here. It said that you must share the details, or we would dismiss it for non-compliance. You make a statement here, and then no compliance. The dignity of the SC has to be maintained. Uh, I don't know exactly how to you know read this because on right. the one hand, bail conditions. Are ought to be strictly limited. But at the same time, like you said, cooperation with an investigation is broad enough to incriminate you. So, uh, how, how, how do so we... So, we, we are back these? to the underlying,
0: underlying tension that <laughs> seems to be up discussion we have. Is, <laughs> the ideas that the, that the criminal law claims for itself
1: and what it does. Yeah, it, it's quite stark, especially when, you know, similar benches are doing these things.
0: You know, I want to, I want to, um, because this fishing expedition pit then continues. So we're we're now, we're now, we're now moved on past this order that grants four days of remand. Um, So one accusation that's made is that uh, Zubair is receiving funds from uh, abroad or Pravda, the um, parent company is receiving funds from abroad in violation of the FCRA. Um, and, uh, and 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 Pratik Sena, who's the Alt News, uh, you know, um, if the founder, uh, he immediately issued a clarification saying that look, we receive our money through ra- Razor Pay, and um, you know, we we cannot we cannot receive money from abroad. It's just not possible. Then what happens is that uh, Razor Pay served a Section 90 CRPC notice. Have I got that right? Is that is that the correct? Um, technical term?
1: 91. 91,
0: sorry, sorry, yeah, yeah. Uh, and RazorPay hands over all its user, uh, basically, the data of, of all the people who have donated to Alt News to the government or to the investi- investigative agency. Um, this leads to a lot of uproar, and then RazorPay issues a statement saying, Look, we have to comply with this notice. And then people say that, Look, you could have contested it. I mean, my question to you is then, well, is it really feasible for RazorPay to, and could they have contested it without first handing over data? What, I mean, would, would, if you were their lawyer, um, you
1: know and I'm assuming you're not <laughs> no, don't, wait, 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 don't put me in that spot maybe you were I don't
0: know maybe you were uh, but if, no no if, I, you were, I
1: I can disclose that much <laughs> I wasn't you
0: were, you were okay uh, if, if you were as a pays lawyer would you, would you advise them to contest uh, or would you just say look boss I mean there's no way you're winning this just hand over the data because you have to uh,
1: look I so I, and I I think I, I spoke about this to a number of people when the opportunity came and uh, even in terms of uh, the law, the problem is not the 91 notice, right? The problem is that a lot of the information that was asked for and Razorpay confirmed this in its replies, whatever it was required to maintain under law, it had to give. And I don't mm-hmm. think you have an option there because you can't not cooperate with an ongoing investigation you can Sorry, choose can I, to can
0: I, can I just can I just one one question on that yeah yeah again again and okay maybe this was this is totally not feasible in the reality in which we live but as a matter of law can't Razorpay say that giving this information violates the right to privacy of of my of people using my platform and and therefore I'm I, I will I will contest this in court uh that you know I constitution bars me from from
1: doing this I'm just thinking, thinking out so, loud yeah. So, so two, three things on that. One is, uh, again, let's assume hypothetically that the data that was asked for from Razorpay required disclosures of, uh, you know, personally identifiable material. Right. So I believe PAN numbers were linked yeah. with payments. So that much is there. So uh, the second question then is, is Indian law on privacy protective of that kind of information when it comes face to face with an investigation. And there again, if I am so if I am Razor Pay's lawyer and that's the seat that you're putting me in, I would look at Puttaswamy. I would look at the different opinions that are there. I would look at the judgments thereafter, and I would say, actually, you know, there isn't anything on that front just yet. Whatever little Puttaswamy says is actually very deferential to state interests hmm. when it comes to privacy and it says that a criminal investigation is going to sort of prevail over privacy interests in most opportunities so that's two so i so to bottom line sure go to court but chances of you getting anything and chances of you getting a stay against the notice would have been extremely low right so and i'm saying that is in terms of the law as it stands because while you know, we have, Puttaswami, we do not have clarity in terms of what all an investigation can legitimately ask for, cannot ask for, how can it ask for it, etc. I mean, we have actually gone one step removed from this. The problem is much more central to the previous thing that we were discussing, which was about the phone and the laptop. Right. So if your phone and the laptop access is only required for this investigation and its purposes. Why do you need a clone copy of everything on my device? Right. It doesn't make any sense. But, and and I've seen this again and again, you will have a clone copy of the entire thing. One percent of it. So I'll give you an example. The entire case is about WhatsApp chats between X person, Y person about demand of bribe and acceptance Mm. of bribe. There are photos showing liquor bottles and whatnot. You need Mm. the WhatsApp chat. You take the WhatsApp chat. Why do you need the clone copy of the phone? you will take a clone copy of the phone because you can there is no application of mind there but from a privacy perspective it is as if you know it, it, it was like a pillar of salt that just completely eroded the moment it came up face to face with the legal investigation
0: the privacy the judgment me. put put me put, put, the judgment
1: basically no i'm yeah you're right yeah. i'm saying yeah. the, right privacy, the, the, right the right to privacy the right, right to, to privacy, not yeah. have yeah. anything that is disproportionate to the interests of the state's investigation being disclosed is ephemeral. It doesn't exist in practice. And what will right. happen to those copies? They will be lying in some malkhana somewhere or those diskettes will be in court somewhere. <laughs> and good luck finding them.
0: Yeah, I mean, I guess like the problem, of course, is when that fishing expedition then becomes a ground to, you find something else that is totally unrelated. That's, and that's that, yeah. yeah. Like, say, oh, conspiracy. So I think that's what the real problem then then becomes. um, Okay, so then Razorpik gives the information. uh, Fair enough, uh, they have to. um, Then they they move the high court against the remand order. By the time they get to the high court, uh, four days, it was a four-day remand order, three days have, have passed. So the high court issues notice, for four weeks, you know, and I think it just came up again. Uh, it, it, um, uh, so, so, th- so then that, that high court proceeding doesn't give them any immediate relief. Uh, then on 2nd July, when the remand gets over, they apply for bail uh, to the um, trial court. Now, I look, uh, I I don't want to get into the whole 2 p.m. investigating officers seem to know what the order was. Let, let's 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 move past that. You know, there's nothing we can we can we can add to that that discourse. Uh, but the trial code denies bail, um, you know, and, and at this point, you see a kind of like shifting case happening, right? It's there was originally a, a tweet and now it's Pakistani Syrian money, um, you know, possibility of that. Um, but I'm, what I'm asking you, I guess, is that, again, in your experience, if there has been an arrest, say, under 295A um, for, say, something like a tweet, you know, of this kind of a case, had it not been This kind of a case where somebody with the profile of of Zubair being arrested and someone like the Solicitor General himself arguing, would a magistrate have given bail? Or is this order of the magistrate denying bail? Just something that is very common, even in cases where the offense itself is pretty minor. It's like one tweet, right? So in that sense, was this kind of unusual? Or is this just a, a denial of bail? At the first instance very common even in these kinds of cases
1: uh look i can't deny the fact that you know the projection by the state plays a huge role in how the court perceives it so if the state is projecting this case to be part of this overall large broad conspiracy where i believe the words that were used in one hearing were there is a syndicate that exists i was i was going to talk about the syndicate but yeah so so i believe yeah that no i think i think we would be be doing a disservice to everyone's intelligence to suggest that no no the projection by a state does not make any difference to how serious a case is i i i mean let's let's be very real that that really isn't the case and and everyone knows that even the judges know that the state definitely knows that Mm -hmm. uh so 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 that that really has to always be considered and i you which is why every case is different, right? So every 295A case, for that matter, is not going to be the same either. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, assuming this was a valid prosecution where I think a lot of uh, uh, reasonable doubt might exist. But uh, just saying that like every 304A case might not be the same. So for that matter, uh, you know, they <laughs> I, I think you get the point where yeah. and I think you've already made the point rather, and I think that I'm just agreeing with it. So, so
0: think, sorry, sorry, go on, go
1: on. Yeah. No, no, so, so that stands. And in in terms of how influence how does that influence a judge's discretion, obviously it bears some sort of imprint on, on the court that, you know, this is a big case, this is a serious investigation, and there are serious investigative interests purportedly at play here which are borne out from the fact that they are talking about foreign money and this, that, right? So I think that was very critical to what happened in that bail hearing, the fact that the case had modified. So two things there. One, can that happen? Absolutely, yes. An investigation is open-ended. To that extent, I don't think anyone has any... Like, you know, they, I think there were a lot of people who were like, what the hell is an FCRA doing here? It was about the tweet. The problem is, it's never about that, right? And you can continuously shift the goalposts. There is no certainty. And that is that is exactly what an investigation is.
0: Yeah, and there was there was an article by Loc- Justice ex Justice Lokur in the Wire, uh, pointing out how the UPFIRs were just adding, dropping offenses at will, you know. But again, that- Yeah. That's just what we've come to accept, that right? That yes, yeah, so can keep and It, it need
1: not be this way, right? So yeah. I think that's what. So I'm I'm saying that in an alternate reality, you can actually build a case in the existing setup to say that you know the police, when they do decide to add offences to an investigation, and I think that's that's what's material. So what happens in our system is that accusation that you know this is the offence is a big deal hmm. because before that. You know, everything sort of the police's powers flow from the kind of offences they allege. Mm. But is there any possibility of reviewing what kind of offences they allege? No. Mm. So should the police not have to satisfy a different authority that, oh, look, we think this is also made out. We are adding this to our investigation. Okay, let's hold your horses there. Can you? Should you? Does it make sense? So I mean, but is sense, isn't, a, isn't
0: the answer there basically a genuinely independent police force with like a DPP who's independent, you know, who decides these cases, right? As I say, in in okay, the UK has a lot of issues, obviously, but I mean, I guess what their their safeguard is a DPP like who will take the call, you know, in various situations on whether to add or not to add, and that yeah, you're right. To be independent.
1: You're absolutely right, but so so which is what? So given that our context doesn't have that. In our context, I'm saying if you want to build the argument, what the Supreme Court has given you is that it through section 156 has said that a court can monitor an investigation. Hmm. Now, if a court can monitor an investigation, does that not allow you the ability as a court to then ask questions when the police comes around, you know, periodically the police during an investigation, if if, uh, if a person is in custody, will periodically have to file reports seeking extension of remand you in those extension of remand reports will have to tell the court, okay, what is happening in your investigation? In that moment, can you not say that a court ought to ask some questions? Right. So right. there I'm saying that, so the opportunity to ask questions exists. Does it happen? I mean, that's a separate issue altogether.
0: It didn't happen in this in this bail case, at least in the yeah,
1: trial court. It didn't happen in this yeah. one. And I'm saying generally also, you know, that, that even though, even though there is this idea that you can monitor an investigation, there is an equally strong line of cases that says that the police's realm is independent of the courts. The courts ought not to overstep their jurisdiction. Right. So there is again that tension that courts ought not to second guess the wisdom of the police. We, like, you know, just to continue the running theme. Mm. So, so this is again incidental to that tension that look, am I second, am I overstepping my boundaries by asking the police, what the hell are you doing invoking FCRA here? Right, right,
0: right.
1: Right. So we're back to square one incidentally on that. Right,
0: right. Yeah, but then again, I mean, so this, this happens on 2nd of July, on the 15th of July, the Sessions Court grants bail in a very basic and very straightforward order that just says that, look, I mean, it's about a tweet. You've got the phone. You've got the laptop. You don't need his custody anymore. And so I'm granting bail, Um, which, of course, I think that raises the question of... if the the Timing
1: is critical, Gautam. The first 14 days of police custody have gone. The police have not sought for additional police custody remand at all. And this is what we were starting with the conversation that, therefore, the judge in his calculus can Mm -hmm. apply that... You know, mathematical equation of okay, the police no longer want his custody, so therefore the needs of the investigation have been met, and that calculus is actually there in the order where yes, there is a lot of language about dissent and etc. etc. Yeah, yeah I'm, not, I'm, not even, but, I'm not even getting into that, but key factors there being investigation, investigative need is fulfilled, hmm.
0: Hmm.
1: and that's what, right? So, so your, your, uh, you know. Uh, what do you call it? Sacrifice of liberty to the cause of the state is complete.
0: It is now complete. Right. <laughs> right. OK. OK. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, right. So, so, so going back in time now. So uh, in the meantime, while this whole Delhi thing is going on, there are six FIRs in various jurisdictions within the UP, which is where the whole this adding and dropping of offences going on which Justice Lokur talks about in his piece. Um, Now, then on 7th of July, the Sitapur court denies bail, and I found this very strange because the ground it gave was that he could influence witnesses, which, I mean, okay, now I'm going to, making all the allowances that you have made for magistrates, I mean, this seems to me to be a little too far. I mean, how can the guy influence witnesses in a case involving something that he said about certain seers, right? I mean... This is literally an open and shut kind of legal issue of whether that amounted to whatever the offense was—153A or so on. How can influencing witnesses be a ground to deny bail? Um, you know, in, in in that situation,
1: like what? I mean, it, it does beggar <laughs> belief. So let's again re-engineer the question. What does the police need to show? Hmm. Right. So I agree with you that it, it it's it's a little uh, you know it's stretching belief when we think about it but also let's question what does the law require of the police when it is making the allegation and the and the answer there is actually absolutely nothing so in okay. fact the supreme court in in one of the judgments in mr chidambaram's cases hmm. had actually held that you know when you are making these kinds of allegations you have to have some basis
0: that was Justice Two Banu Banumathi's Banu judgment. Uh, yeah, was this right?
1: is Justice Banu Mati's judgment. Right. So, so there they held that, look, when you're talking about things like influencing witnesses or fleeing the country and so on and so forth, you have to have some material basis to allege that. Mm-hmm. This can't be an allegation in thin air. But, you know, some basis is what? You file an affidavit, do you show a statement? In Mr. Chidambaram's case, they were actually, you know, they showed a person's statement that, mm. you know, this is this is our basis. So, but there is no consistency there, right? So there is nothing in in law that requires a consistency from the police to satisfy. You know, I am filing something on affidavit. There is something there, even though that might be a false affidavit, whatever. But something the law requires. Currently, the law requires nothing. So what you get usually is a cyclo style thing, saying they will tamper with evidence, they will run away, they will do this, they will be. They are basically the worst person you can ever imagine. So don't grant them bail. Every right. reply will say this. Without really any clear application of mind to satisfy in this case, what is it that makes you think so? Right. And nothing in the law really requires that level of application of mind from the police either or for the judge to say that, okay, the police need to show me, you know, by leading evidence. So -hmm. in some countries on bail, you lead evidence by way of either an informant or an officer that says that, okay, you know, this is what I have to satisfy the court that look, this person ought not to be granted bail. We right. don't have any rigor in terms of how bail hearings procedurally happen. And I think there are a lot more questions that uh, can come up when we think about the rigors of procedure when it comes to bail across the board, right? So if you think about accepting extrajudicial confessions, accepting mm. confessions by or by accused in, persons.
0: In, in, inadmissible evidence.
1: Inadmissible yeah. evidence. So that's yeah. all stemming to the fact that there is really no rigor of procedure when it comes to bail hearings. That's right, right, right. right. Yeah. Okay, so uh, Sitapur
0: court has now denied bail. And uh, now, now all the action... Yeah, so Sitapur court has denied bail. Delhi High Court has issued notice and given a four-week time. Delhi Sessions Court has given bail, but that makes no difference because he's in, he's still in jail, obviously, because there are six affairs against him. So now, now all the action moves to Supreme Court. Um, so on 8th of July, which is actually before the Sessions Court granted bail... The uh, Supreme Court vacation bench gives him interim bail for five days and also restrains him from tweeting. And, I mean, we don't need to discuss how how silly that kind of direction is. Uh, No, uh,
1: that similar kind of restriction was posted on, I think, either Devangana, Kalita or uh, Natasha. Yeah, no, I've seen this has
0: become a very common thing. I've
1: seen this. Ah, you're saying it's become common, okay. Yeah. It is preposterous, but it is common.
0: Yeah, I I think not just this... I think now in in many cases I've seen that yeah, one of the conditions is don't tweet. You can't you can't tweet and you can't say X and you can't you can't comment on this case. I think one of the bail conditions of Sudha Bharadwaj's bail was that she can't comment on the case. She can't
1: can't talk to the media about the case,
0: right? So I think that I mean that's become I think that, yeah, I would say it's obviously terrible, but it's nothing that really requires us to discuss. It's very obviously Bad and wrong. What else can you say, right? Um, also, this is this is the day that, uh, by the way, the 8th July Supreme Court hearing is when the learned Solicitor General brought up the whole syndicate point. Um, I have I have it noted down here. So uh, yeah, so 8th July he gets um, this interim bail for five days, vacation bench. Then of course he gets the Delhi Sessions Court bail, but that doesn't make a difference to his liberty. Um, on 18th of July, Supreme Court, which is now the regular bench, Justice Understood, um uh, says no precipitate action to be taken against him. Uh, you know, and then on 20th July, he he gets bail, um, and the Supreme Court in its order basically ensures that he will go free by doing two things. One is that it says that by 6 p.m. today he has to be set free, and you know, there's no real, I mean. You know this reminded me of? This reminded me of, and of course, very different cases, but this reminded me of um, New York Times versus Sullivan, where um, the American Supreme Court, after having laid down the law on defamation, you know, the actual malice standard, just had no confidence in the Alabama courts to adjudicate the case fairly, even after its judgment. And therefore, instead of remanding the case back to the Alabama courts, which is the usual thing you would do, the U.S. Supreme Court itself said that this is not defamation because it just did not trust the Alabama courts to like fairly. And when I see when I see the Supreme Court saying he has to be set free by 6 p.m., but what I see is the Supreme Court has no faith that um, the, the 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 subordinate judiciary in UP and the UP police forces will actually act to. Release him and will not just keep him in jail for one more week, saying bail bonds haven't come, stuff like that, which we have seen happen before, right? So I saw, I saw a bit of, I saw a bit of that, I that
1: Sullivan's Yeah, that's quite bail. fascinating because yeah, I mean, I have never so whenever I have had actually people come out on bail, they've never come out by six; it's usually been more like ten. So I was quite uh, interested. I don't know actually technically whether he came out at six or not. Finally, he came
0: out around seven. He came out around seven.
1: There you go. So <laughs> someone was in contempt.
0: Uh yeah. yeah. I do. I, I don't. I think that uh, this is a bit long time ago. But back in 2016, when the O.G. sedition case was going on uh, in for JNU, and uh, and Umar Khalid had gotten bail, uh, had gotten bail. At that time, I was I was one of the lawyers involved, and I think I think we were we were racing against time to to get them out before the the weekend, because then in that case it would have been harder to go back to court. And, yeah, So the, as I remember like trying to get them out on Friday evening and stuff like that. Um, yeah, so in that sense, I mean, you can see that this is really unusual. And clearly, the, the Supreme Court um, just did not think that, unless it specified 6 p.m. today, uh, that Zubair was coming out any, anytime soon, despite its bail order. Uh, that's one thing. The second is, of course, that it, it basically says that any that this bail order will cover any future FIRs. Um, that are on the same subject which was obviously to prevent evergreening of FIRs right um, and it transferred all the FIRs to Delhi special cell so that it doesn't happen in UP continuously or in various places so yeah so all of that I mean like so look this is really I mean so it, can it, we
1: take can we take up the second
0: issue for a little bit
1: yeah, yeah go because go for it. Yeah, because yeah. I think and and obviously the 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 bench here has referred to the the orders in arunabh goswami's case where again there were multiple firs that were transferred and there was immediate relief granted and i'm saying that you know there's been arunabh goswami's case there has been uh, the cases surrounding other journalists there have been cases surrounding uh, you know besides media personalities film producers and actors where base, and you, if you turn back the clock, you will go back in time and find cases against newspaper editors and publishers mm-hmm. where basically this issue in criminal law about multiple causes of action arising because you you know, like your feelings can be hurt no matter where you are. You can get offended no matter where you are. You can be that defamation cause of action can be made no matter where you are. Right. Okay. So over time, the Supreme Court hasn't and, you know, it's become much more over the last 10 years with YouTube and with the electronic media being much, much more easily disseminating uh, content. Uh, The court just is not yet able to figure out a way in which it can deliver justice consistently. So what has come about is this method of individual, you know, as someone like uh, mutual uh, acquaintance friend on Twitter said celebrity justice hmm. but basically this idea that you know in individual cases we will figure something out hmm. but we have to again figure it out and I mean come on we have to talk about how you know there was another case that was happening around the same facts where one of the uh, the, the speech regarding you know the remarks regarding Prophet Muhammad hmm. uh, so th- the petitioner had moved there I'm God, I'm uh, forgetting Nubur, the name. Nubur Sharma also, yes, also
0: clubbed also club, also club, also club in that case
1: after. Yeah, so that happens, but, but, that, that, didn't, court but, court, but yeah. that didn't happen on the first instance, right? And that, that. So, so that was what was peculiar where similar facts, similar circumstance, multiple cases on the first date, the court refuses to do anything. And then there, there is that entire song and dance about there is a withdrawal. Then there is a readmission of a withdrawal on SLP. And then the court decides to grant relief. So I'm saying again, similar, th- there can't be more an arbitrary sort of, you know, on your face of it in terms of what the court was doing. And I'm saying that there are multiple such cases. So in terms of what happened, let's say with, uh, I'm forgetting again, names are escaping me for all of a sudden, but there were the remarks regarding Mohinuddin uh, Chisti and that case which reversed a judgment by I think Justice Sanjeev Khanna regarding uh, hate speech. Ah uh, yes, yes, yes
0: yes yes yeah, yeah, yeah. names no, are right, me yeah
1: yeah I think it was Amish Devgan's case yeah, yeah I think that was the one so again over the last five years you've seen that more and more and I think the court really has to come up with a like a judgment that lays down you know some sort of law on this if you were to consult the Crpc on this. Because, I mean, that's what I sometimes have to do. You find that, you know, at some level, the CRPC did think about this, but obviously we are dealing with a reality that was much, much before what is the time today, Mm. right? Where you have electronic media allowing things to happen as fast as they can. So if I remember right, it used to be... uh, One sec. So in the jurisdiction chapter... There is a clause, I think, I'm forgetting which one it is, but basically it says that where one court has taken cognizance and other courts, uh, yeah, so 186. So 186 of the CRPC said that where two or more courts have taken cognizance of the same offense and a question arises as to which of them ought to inquire into that offense. Mm. The question shall be decided if the court's subordinate are to the same high court by that high court. If right. the courts are not subordinate to the same high court by the high court within whose local limits uh, or appellate jurisdiction, the proceedings were first commenced. Mm-hmm. And thereupon, all other proceedings in respect of that offense shall be discontinued. So there is some idea, you know, to stop multiple proceedings. But I'm saying the code is limited because it talks about cognizance. It doesn't talk about investigations. It right. allows for multiple investigations. So you as the Supreme Court really needs to like set the record straight for this because not every person can afford, you know, come into the SC quickly and then hope for justice under a 142 type kind of framework. Because well, that, was kind of, that,
0: was, that was kind of like the last point I wanted to make and okay, end, oh, on, this, end huh. on this. Um, yeah. So like you said, this is in itself a good order. It It, you know, it prevents the continued harassment of Zubair, which was very clearly what was happening. Yeah, Again, yeah. Evidence of our eyes and ears is very clear. You know, yeah. I, it prevents evergreening, and it basically kind of saves the guy from being perse- persecuted. So it, it's good. Like, I mean, let, let, let's not, let's not, let's not kind of- Absolutely, it's, it's, a a cool. it's a
1: great order.
0: great yeah. order, right? Um, but, right, the problem is you needed this order because everything below had failed, right? And this is something I see increasingly commonly happening, right, where, uh. At every level up to the Supreme Court, right? Uh, you know, things fail, and I'm, again, like you said, it's not. And you, you, there's no point in blaming an individual magistrate or an individual session judge or an individual high court judge. It's a systemic issue, uh, you know. Where like, and just again summing up our whole conversation, right? Initial one day remand, um, four day remand, denial of bail, denial of bail part two allowing grabbing of like phone. So all of that has been happening. And then what you effectively have is because everything below is failing you. You basically go to Supreme Court with a Hail Mary, right? Saying that, okay, Supreme Court, because you are Supreme and you have all this part, yeah. yeah, do something, do something, right? put everything right, because you can and only you can, right? It's And sometimes the Supreme Court does, as it has done in this case. Sometimes it do, doesn't. But this is no solution, right? Like you it's basically sticking band aid onto cancer, right? To to use a, um, a simile. Your problems are systemic running through the whole system, and you can't rely upon one great order that will band put a band aid over all of this uh, as like a long-term solution to all these issues. Um, you know, it's a bit like I think in our history it's a bit like the whole pil thing right like you have all these issues
1: you have to just do it don't you <laughs> yeah like,
0: and, like yeah, i mean you know you know you have all these issues and and, the, and there's just, like, this 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 gordian knot which you can't untangle and then you're like okay let's just go to supreme court and get this gordian knot cut with like one order it's great when it works but as we have seen over long term it could lead to more problems than it solves I, I don't know, I mean, I guess the solution is long, patient years of hard work, you know, at all levels of the judiciary trying to move the needle on these things. Um, but I guess I just wanted to maybe sound a slight note of caution around the celebrations surrounding this order, because as we said, it's a great order. But the very fact you needed this great order shows you all that's
1: wrong, right? Yeah, I couldn't agree more with everything that you said, Gautam. And like I was saying, I think, you know, on occasion and where this month has been funny in the sense that you had the order in Zubair's case, you had this judgment that is talking about bail and the principles of bail in, in an abstract where it is talking about how magistrates are maybe not doing, you know, uh, uh, they may be sort of not really exercising their discretion as they ought to be. And uh, that, that, that shows you that the court on occasion is cognizant and wants to do something right. And, you know, the intentions are there when it comes to these issues. And uh, it's it's there because things aren't right. And mm. and there are a lot of frank uh, admissions in that bail judgment, which I would urge people to just see in terms of, you know, very, not it's not very often that I have read the Supreme Court order that acknowledges that fact of pre-trial punishment being meted mm. out through the bail system being, you know, referred to in as candid words as it has been in satinder Kumana till the most recent order. But just to sort of flag that issue that I was highlighting, because I think that's also going to become important as practice go, uh, uh, sort of is considered. I think this issue of multiple FIRs, it really needs, you know, some sort of sanity from the Supreme Court, unless like the law gets amended to clarify you know, in what cases. Because... I don't think the law can do it because, you know, you can imagine situations where multiple FIRs can exist. Like imagine Mm. like a Ponzi scheme of a Sahara scale, suppose, Mm. where people across the country are cheated. Even then, beyond a certain point, you will have to take the trial in some place, right? So there you can imagine like a 186 CRPC working and then sending cases to one place post cognizance. Mm. But it happens, right? Right now, I know many cases where people, for the same underlying offense, are like ferried across country because of production warrant here, production warrant there, because you cheated X person, Y person, Z person. So I'm saying that this issue of multiple FIRs and multiple investigations, in fact, if you think about it, you are, we are witnessing some like you know, some subtle elitism in terms of how reliefs are like you know being yeah. granted to people. Because at the ground level, this will happen. And this does happen. And there are no reliefs for Mm. a lot of people in these kinds of matters. Especially like when you think about like cross-country scams, like people buying into chit funds, this, that. Mm. So you won't see it. And uh, I think that kind of a resolution will be required going forward. Because I think as the law does work, people who are similar to, you know, people who are in positions of power, the more they get afflicted, you will find the law sort of change its colors to try and save everyone. Mm. Mm. So so I think it, this is going to be, you know, I'm surprised that it hasn't happened yet, but it's not going to be sustainable uh, over the years. And this might be one thing that changes over the next five years or so. Like there's more regularization in this approach of, you know, of how the Hail Mary works. So either either the Hail Marys will stay, but there'll be a lot more clarity in exactly what you go to the Supreme Court for. And I think that's actually happened hmm. where even five years ago, this wasn't really, you know, par for the course that people would go to the Supreme Court with this kind of a petition with transfer, give me bail, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. I think that that has happened. So, like you know, that that evolution has happened. I think the next step in this evolution will be the Supreme Court sort of preempting these kinds of matters.
0: Right. Well, on one, that on one. that bracing note and that positive note, <laughs> um, you know, uh, thanks thanks so much for oh, taking. Oh, out. thank you.
1: Yeah, this was uh, quite know, a fun have, conversation. We
0: have, uh, I think, yeah, over over two sessions. I think we have almost hit three hours. Um, you know, I, I, in the beginning, I. I hope that there is a bit of a breather before we need to call you back on, on the concast. I,
1: hope, I hope so too. Otherwise, I'm going to charge you 14, 14 pounds, whatever your barber wants <laughs> to charge
0: you. <laughs> well, I, say, I, I hope that next time it's for a good, you know, uh, like a, something, that, that's <laughs> know yeah, what, sure. something that's good. I don't know. what. Yeah, uh, sure.
1: Something that's good. Thanks so much and, and see you soon. See you. Take care.